You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this, this is this, The Hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour. With Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. The Hour is RA's blend of interviews, discussion, documentaries and other things besides. On this month's show, we'll be talking in-depth about GHB, one of the most controversial recreational drugs in existence. In April of this year, Michel Delfouche, the prefect of the Paris police, told Les Parisiens there could be a hundred comas in the city this year due to GHB or GBL overdoses. This was following the death of a 24-year-old man who fell into a coma at the venue Petit Bain after accidentally drinking GBL from a water bottle he found. If you've been in and around clubs in recent years, there's a high chance you've heard stories about people falling unconscious or worse after taking GHB. GHB may not be as widespread as other clubbing drugs, but it's something that venues and individuals in the scene have to regularly contend with. It's a drug of choice in what's become known as the chemsex scene, where gay men take GHB in order to have group sex for an extended period of time. GHB is also the so-called date rape drug. A small amount slipped into a drink can lead to a person falling unconscious and open to sexual assault, with little or no memory of what happened to them. And on top of all of this, GHB can be highly addictive. So why do people take GHB? What exactly does it do? And why can it be lethal? We'll hear about what clubs are doing to combat GHB use. We are definitely very strict on uh, GHB. If we find persons on GHB with GHB, we definitely throw them out and never let them in again. Talk with an expert about its physiological effects. Both drugs are targeting the same point in the brain, but ever so slightly different parts of that point. And so they have a really magnifying effect. Speak with a former user about GHB addiction. So I got to a point where I had to do it every hour. And then at nighttime, I would do it every two hours and I would wake up on the dot every two hours. Most people would want to get out right then. Like, oh, this is, you know, way too, <laughs> this is way too heavy. But it was before I understood what tolerance and addiction or anything was. And find out why GHB carries particular risks in the LGBT community. Use was shifting away from the clubs and into the bedroom. It marked such a huge change. It's brought a new set of harms in associated with GHB and made our work a lot more complex. And the needs that people have are hugely uh, more complex than they were when using more clubbing drugs. So what exactly happens to the body when you take GHB? We travelled to Cambridge to meet with a scientist, Guy Jones. So this is the lab. Guy is a senior chemist for a charity called The Loop, who set up drug testing facilities at festivals. I've just put my uh, safety specs on and I'm just now popping some gloves on as well. He also works as the technical lead for reagent tests, where he produces home drug testing kits. We are in the Reagent Tests UK lab, where we prepare the reagents ready to be sent out for people to use at home to test their drugs. 
So the sound that you can hear is a magnetic stirrer. And one more pipette load. And let that stir for about a minute. I also work for an organisation called The Loop. We go to festivals and music events and provide a full lab service there. So not just with reagents, we have infrared spectroscopy and ultraviolet spectroscopy to provide people with a really detailed test result about what their substance is. And when they come and collect their result, they also get to speak to a professional drugs worker who has a lot of expertise with those substances and can talk to people about their past drug use, their planned drug use for the evening, any medications they're on and work with them to identify these are the risks that are specifically applying to you and what people can do to try and reduce those risks. We'll find out more about Guy's work later in the programme, but for now let's concentrate on getting to know GHB better as a substance. So we don't tend to see loads of GHB or GBL, but we do have the occasional sample come through to us. GHB is actually found um, inside the human body. It's uh, in very trace amounts. It, the body uses it as what we call a neurotransmitter for sending messages in the brain, but it's really tiny amounts. When people take it, it is introducing a huge amount of this neurotransmitter into the body and it floats into uh, many of the locations that alcohol actually is targeting. It does this, however, in a much more pointed and sharper way and so a much smaller amount can have an extremely strong effect. So whereas with alcohol, ethanol, you might expect to have 10 mils in one shot. With G, if you have maybe four to five mils, then that can potentially have the effect of three, four, five shots. GBL finds uses in kind of industrial chemistry. It is a little bit like ethanol in a way, again, uh, a very useful industrial solvent. If you take GBL, it's almost immediately converted into GHB in the blood. It's a really rapid process. Uh, it's kind of a textbook example of an enzymatic reaction. Once it is in that form of GHB, the G targets a receptor called the GABA receptor in the brain, which is the same one that alcohol primarily targets. And this receptor is kind of a, a, a slow down signal for the brain. So it's sending a message to all the other systems in the brain saying reduce signaling activity, slow the messages down, let's calm things down a little bit. And so what we see is that G has a sedative effect, it tends to calm people, reduce anxiety, reduce inhibitions. At the same time there's a little bit of activity on dopamine and combined with the reduced inhibitions this can increase people's sex drive so it's sometimes used as an aphrodisiac drug in some circles as well as a social lubricant. Yeah, it was definitely my life for a really long time, so I know quite a bit about it. <laughs> this is Ty. He's a friend of a friend and he lives in the US. He was heavily addicted to GHB for a long time. It's a it's a weird type of drug and chemical. Like once you start doing it, like you you get infatuated with knowing like what it's doing to your circuitry and and all the pharmacology of it. So I actually like you know dove really deep into trying to figure out what was happening because at the time it was being sold in uh, in health stores and it was called Renutrient. And it was uh, it was legal, and it wasn't, 
it wasn't the date rape drug. It was, you know, it was made for human growth hormone to increase your growth hormone levels and, and, and calm you down like kava or whatever. So I actually started doing it in a health supplement type of mentality and then it became something completely different at the end. <laughs> the benefit I had was like a very happy, almost like a euphoria, like Molly, you know, like a real clean Molly with a with maybe drinking a couple drinks of alcohol, but still in control, like very well aware of my surroundings and very like confident and sure about myself. So I like was able, I was always had anxiety to begin with in my life. So it was like really great to break out of my shell. And I got like a lot accomplished to be honest on it. <laughs> it was an all love relationship really with it. Like until the very end almost really. Um, I, I it, it helped me probably more times out of not, it probably I, you know, I can contribute it helping me throughout many late nights working as a DJ and doing stuff and meeting lots of friends. Um, and it and it was all good for a really long time. I did it for probably 12, 13 years straight. Every hour upon the hour, the tolerance level shoots up through the roof and your receptors cap out over a certain amount of time. And you have to then um, to not feel withdrawal effects, which are which was the downfall of it. Uh, you would have to keep redosing at a certain level if you wanted to, obviously. And I had endless supplies because I also made it and whatnot, which is a different part of the story. But I had endless supplies, so I didn't realize what was happening with my tolerance level. And so I got to a point where I had to do it every hour before I started feeling weird. Um, and then at nighttime, I would do it every two hours and I would wake up like on the dot every two hours and not at first, not really realizing what was happening and then realizing, Oh, I have to take this to go back to sleep too. And most people would want to get out right then. Like, Oh, this is, you know, way too, <laughs> this is way too heavy to have a burden of something every single day. But I had, you know, I was, it was available enough to where it didn't matter to me. And, I, and at the time, I didn't think it was that bad for you. I just didn't really understand what it, it was before I understood what tolerance and addiction or anything was. So that was like, um, you know, it was my body becoming dependent on it and not realizing how deep and how far I was actually getting myself and my, you know, my brain circuitry changing forever. We'll hear from Ty again later. GHB or gamma-hydroxybutrate was first synthesized by the French physician Dr. Henri Labourit in 1960. As GHB appears naturally in different parts of the body, he wanted to study its effects. It was found to calm people and help induce sleep. It was developed as an anesthetic, but was later withdrawn due to its side effects, which included comas and seizures. Despite this, in the 1980s, GHB could be bought in health stores and was used by bodybuilders who thought that taking it could improve performance or muscle mass. Over-the-counter sales of GHB were banned in the US in 1990 and it was eventually designated as a Scheduled One substance in 2000. In the UK, GHB became a Class C substance in 2003. 
GHB gained a foothold in club scenes during the 1990s, and there have been reported cases of its use ever since. Paris is currently experiencing a surge in GHB-related incidents. We haven't included the conversation here because of a bad Skype connection, but Christophe Vigras from Collectif Action Nuit in Paris told me about the group's efforts to raise awareness about GHB in the club scene and to lobby local authorities about tackling the issue. Christophe felt that GHB's low cost and ease of availability were a couple of the factors fueling this trend. Below the news piece about the GHB incidents in Paris, a couple of RA readers said that the drug had been prevalent in Melbourne in recent years. A piece on the website Thump from 2016 reported that Canadian club owners had seen an increase in usage. Berlin long seems to have been a hotspot for GHB in Europe, and the same is true in London. Like other recreational drugs, GHB use often seems to follow the pattern of a trend reaching a peak before receding and perhaps returning at a later stage. Guy Jones, the senior chemist from The Loop, is now going to explain what happens in the body when too much GHB is consumed. If somebody takes too much G, then assuming they manage to keep it in them, uh, a common side effect of G can be extreme nausea and a lot of vomiting accompanies that as the body tries to get rid of it, it recognises something's gone wrong. If the body doesn't vomit, then the first thing that people tend to notice is that they're really having difficulty keeping their eyes open. They don't feel like they're going to pass out but they feel like they want to go and sit down and they just want to rest their eyes for a bit. And before they know it, a two second rest of the eyelids becomes a 30 second nap and that can slip into a kind of unarousable sleep where they will be out for two to four hours if they have only taken G. If they've taken other drugs with it, like alcohol, and this is another factor, alcohol really confuses the body about the amount of G that it can handle. Um, if they've taken another sedative, then the potential is that they can go into a much deeper sleep that lasts much longer and also their breathing rate can slow down and there's a very much higher chance of nausea and vomiting and therefore choking on somebody's vomit. So I had a really bad experience because um, I was touring a lot DJing. Ty tells us about the turning point in his relationship to GHB. And I had a really bad experience when I was in California. I went to Sacramento, California to play some kind of gig you know one of these small raves at a weird place i played the party then i was I agreed to do an after party and while i was there someone stole all my stuff so i was out there it was gone i was like okay you know i'm going home tomorrow like not a big deal i'll just wait it out and and at the time i didn't realize what was going to happen to my body and so about two or three hours later i started like hallucinating and started feeling really funny and then it then it, and then it all hit me like a like a ton of bricks, like full on anxiety attack, kind of like if you were coming off of maybe heroin and alcohol at the same time in like a four hour period, like cause it came out of your body so fast and ended up having to call the ambulance because I thought I was dying and like all this crazy stuff. And these people just probably thought I was the weirdest guy ever. Um, so then I got home like and then I, you know, I sat down in my in my living room and I was like, wow, I'm like this stuff's a lot, a lot heavier than I expected it to be. You know, I didn't yeah. realize the grip it was, it was uh, the grip that it was having on me at the time until, you know, an event like that happened. And I was like, holy hell, like I'm in deep shit now. 
So instead of just stopping like I should have, I was like, great, I got a lot more. I'm not going to let that happen again. <laughs> you know, and I just started doing it again. And I was like, I just have to make sure it doesn't, I just don't run out. So then, you know, then the rest is history with that. Then 10 more years on it. So Ty, you were talking about the idea of your brain chemistry changing. What did you mean by that? So it has positively changed forever. What it has changed is it completely depleted my receptors to be able to naturally replenish this stuff. Um, and I did it so long and so hard that, uh, you know, I tried to recover for a good two years with nothing and just had no luck. So I actually had to, I had to get on a few different medications just to be able to be normal after all of that happened. So I still... I still take Ambien to sleep or I can't sleep at all. And then I still take like a antidepressant minorly that was kind of covering the serotonin dip, you know, and that could have been from, you know, heavy drug use in the nineties from doing ecstasy too. But, but definitely changed my brain forever to where I think if you're allowed the availability, like I was, it, it can definitely take its toll. And I think it's an unknown type of withdrawal that most people don't realize. And it's like an unknown side effect. And definitely later down the road, if people are doing it more frequently, if it's, I, I, you know, I haven't paid attention in this day and age, if it's out and about more than it used to be again. So if it is, you know, people need to just be cautious and be able to realize that it definitely can change your brain chemistry forever. At the time, there was like a recovery group just for people with, you know, GHB recovery or whatever. And all of them had the same symptoms I did. Like all of us were struggling for years just to feel normal again after we stopped. clear to see why club owners and promoters don't want GHB on dance floors. In Berlin, the Club Commission works to supply clubs with advice and information on the issues that affect the city's nightlife. My name is Raimund Dorantjes. I'm uh, from Club Commission in Berlin. I brought you some information material we are providing to visitors of clubs. So I brought you one information paper about GHB in general. Then uh, I brought you a party pack for a safer use of substances. Then I uh, brought you a general information about our program uh, Best Clubbing, where we train staff of clubs in knowledge about uh, yeah, substances and uh, how they interact with alcohol. We are thinking about uh, informing people about substances because we know that people are consuming substances. Uh, we have various uh, situations in clubs and festivals which we can also avoid. We uh, started an anti-GHB campaign uh, said that we are definitely very strict on uh, GHB. If we find pe persons on GHB with GHB, we definitely throw them out and never let them in again. Many clubs in Berlin uh, were co connected together with this campaign and so uh, everywhere you see the signs and so it doesn't matter in which club you've been uh, going.
going to, it's kind of everywhere, it's kind of like GHB, leave it, uh, make clear that uh, the GHB is something which the whole club scene isn't really happy about. It is a threat because you don't realize what's going on, you have no memories. It is not visible on the first sight that you are uh, overdosed on GHB. It's definitely also something which you have, which you have to uh, react on as a uh, owner of a club or a security person. You are responsible for that as well. So I kind of like uh, you as a club owner or as a promoter. You're in a definitely bad situation just because someone is kind of like not really. Uh, able or it's not uh, having a clear idea about uh, how uh, he's uh, dosing his consumption. That causes also uncomfortable situation for other guests, which we also don't. Uh, what what also is definitely not uh, really funny. <laughs> and uh, so, if you want to have uh, have a uh, safe and comfortable party uh, party setting for all the guests, uh, then GHB is definitely a. Uh, easy to uh, intervene heavily into what's going on. The chemsex phenomenon has shined a particularly bright light on the dangers of GHB use. Monty Moncrief, the chief executive of London Friends, a UK charity that supports the LGBT community's health and mental well-being, told us about his organisation's work on the front lines of the GHB issue. Hi, I'm Monty Moncrief. I'm the Chief Executive of London Friend. Our biggest service is Antidote, a specialist LGBT drug and alcohol service. It's the only one to be fully LGBT run and we provide psychosocial support for LGBT people who are experiencing problems with their drug or alcohol use. We set it up in the early 2000s. We noticed an increase of presentations to services by LGBT people but there wasn't very much specialist support available and so we were working mainly with alcohol, with um, powder cocaine and with the occasional sort of, um, uh, sort of overuse of ecstasy in the early 2000s. Um, in the late 2000s we started to see a real shift in the patterns of drugs that were being used mainly by gay men and that's when we started to see G GHB, GBL emerge, also methadrone and crystal meth and um, they were being used in a sexual context so use was shifting away from the clubs and into the bedroom um, and uh, it marked such a huge change for us. Um, it's, um, it's brought a, a new set of harms in associated with the, those drugs um, and made our work a lot more complex and the needs that people have are hugely uh, more complex than they were when you know people were coming in and using more clubbing drugs they're often being used to keep people awake for you know 48 72 hours so the lack of sleep alone is having an impact but when that's coupled with strong stimulant use we're seeing that having a huge impact it's such a dose-specific drug and you don't need very much of it to get the euphoric effect that people want. And it's not actually a stimulant drug, it's a depressant drug. So it just happens that a small dose of it produces that euphoric effect, which people want for clubbing and want for sex. But actually, if you take too much of it, you can pass out, um, you can go into a coma and a larger dose can be fatal. So we've seen it associated with uh, deaths in London, um, a number of deaths of people using, but also it was implicated in the Stephen Port case, um, a gay man who was convicted of the murder of four gay men and the sexual assault of many others um, by administering GHB uh, to incapacitate his victims so uh, he was able to have sex with them and in four cases that turned
turned into murder because he administered such a large dose of the drug. The use we were seeing in the mid-2000s, we weren't seeing very many people present with this as a problematic substance, but we knew it was in the clubs. So the gay clubs had, there was just such a large amount of people passing out in clubs and medics being called or ambulances being called that the clubs started to um, to come together to try and get a campaign to keep G out of the clubs at that time. That's when we started to see dependence happening as well. So it was a, a really new development for us working in treatment services. We often had to go and uh, talk to other services who'd never heard of the drug and never heard of the fact that people needed a, a detox. And it was really difficult to find medical pathways for people at that time. I think it's perceived in a number of different ways. I think um, we've gone through a, a journey with it. I think when um, when it was being used in the 2000s, it was, um, first of all, it was a legal drug. Uh, then it was made illegal, but people switched to using GBL, which was a similar substance which metabolizes into GHB in the body. Um, and I think the fact that those substances were at the time legally available led some people to think that they were safer, which is not the case. Um, it was perceived at that time as a very efficient drug. It was uh, it gave people a consistent effect that they were looking for, um, but also it was a very economical drug. I mean, at the times that it was legal, you could go on the internet and you could have a, a litre of it delivered to your house for under £100. Uh, so if you got a litre and about a one milliliter dose um, at £100, that's less than 10p a dose. You know, so it's it was a very cheap drug and readily available. Now the risks we're seeing is when people are mainly at sex parties and we're hearing stories of people uh, passing out or can't, not being able to remember what's happened when they've been there and um, in some cases somebody will pass out but the other people at the sex party will carry on having sex with him. We're hearing some um, anecdotal evidence of um, the deliberate administration of G um, to incapacitate people so that they can, uh, other people can have sex with them. We're also hearing of its implications in um, uh, online streaming of sexual activity um, so people are being filmed and streamed without their consent um, at parties um, or that's happening when they've gone over on too much G or in some cases it seems as though that's a deliberate action and people are paying for a link to join those videos and be able to direct the action so by paying money they can actually say what happens on the other end of the live streaming which is really worrying. Um, you know, we were talking with police about sort of the you know, anecdotal evidence we have about that. The police are aware of these things. So, you know, we're looking to see what the, the next steps really are around that. So far, we've heard a number of alarming stories connected with GHB. So what's attractive about the drug in the first place? The next person we interviewed opted to remain anonymous so they could discuss their experiences as a user. I guess I was first attracted to taking GHB because it was the early days of my kind of raving days. Experimentation was clearly full force at that point, so I wanted to just kind of see what different drugs or different chemicals did to me, and yeah, I found that would be quite fun, to be honest with you. In my days, they would actually put them in um, frozen Otter Pop plastics, and then you would just drink that down with flavors, so they actually came like with the size and the serving already ready to go. 
as far as the drug itself, I liked the combination of it being kind of like taking a pill of ecstasy, like the first kind of coming up part of it, and being a bit stumbly drunk, without being in too much of a commitment on either end, so it was really kind of a nice middle ground. Me personally, I didn't really have any bad experiences with it because I was the kind of drug user who would actually do less than more of things. And so I knew the history of GHB where it became very um, dangerous for people because they didn't know their limits. And so for me, my experiences were typically quite excellent. Unfortunately, sorry to say that. In my crew of people, it was everywhere. I mean, there was a guy who would sell it in a um, hockey puck shape because he'd put them into muffin tins and then cook it that way. And so everyone had hockey pucks. They'd melt that down and then you would drink it. It was pretty, pretty old school version, I guess, but it was nice for that sense. It was kind of, I guess, what pure GHB was meant to be. The stuff that they would prescribe in the hospitals as well. I mean, my experience with, with it was really good for the most part. I never had any major issues. I got sick once and it was terrible, but, you know, if you do something like this and you do it the right way, then it's actually quite nice. The responsibility is always the culprit. Funnily enough, I tried it again a few, um, maybe like half a year ago, and I'm quite ambivalent towards it. I think there was a time and a place for it, and that, that era is done. I mean, I'm much less of a clubber-goer and raver than I used to be, and so the idea of that was kind of fun to step back and check it out, but yeah, as far as my personal experiences with it, I'm done with it. Colleague Saoirse Ryan told me about some of the GHB related incidents that she's experienced during her time in the club scene. You reacted to the news post we ran recently about the GHB related comas in Paris, uh, as well as the death of a 24 year old man. Um, you said on social media, um, I've witnessed two people die from this drug over the years and multiple people hospitalized. Sorry, but it doesn't belong on the dance floor. Maybe first, can you just tell me what happened to the people that you mentioned? Yeah, well, actually, the deaths that I witnessed were people who died and were resuscitated by paramedics. I do know of a person who died but I wasn't there to witness it and you know is is dead but I did witness two separate people um, in Ibiza um, many years ago but it was kind of what turned me off the drug from you know for the rest of my life basically. Um, they had taken it uh, and just went into shock some like collapse and I guess I start having fits. Ambulance was called and it was a very, probably most, you know, harshest thing that I've ever witnessed, um, especially because it was, you know, people that I was kind of hanging around with at the time. But uh, they were just kind of like, you know, foaming at the mouth and just the whole body was shaking. Um, and then we were kind of just pushed away um, when, the, when the ambulance got there. But I saw the... Um, machine that they use what is it called the resuscitator yeah, yeah the, whatever it's yeah. called it they kind of shock them and everything and then you know very luckily one of them was brought back to life and was conscious again the other girl was in a coma for maybe four or five days there was that and then i had another very close friend of mine she accidentally took it one time um it was in her friend's fridge and she thought it was just a, a drink, a normal drink, and she took it and she ended up in a coma for over a week, I think, um, which was, you know, a terrifying kind of thing to hear about. And the, the fact that it's something that can lead so easily to death or being, you know, 
brain dead or in a coma or whatever. I, I just don't think that um, a drug like that should be so easy to, to get. It, it seems like it just crosses the line for any other substance that, you know, people tend to um, take and use recreationally in, in our kind of like, you know, clubbing scene. Was that the case in the first incident that you mentioned? Was it just the case that the person was taking it knowingly but as did far too much? as I know, one of them was drinking quite a bit that night as well, um, and the other one was I think just a, a, an overdose because she didn't actually drink. Uh, it's just absolutely lethal with alcohol. And I think that was the thing that always really felt so like it sat with me really weirdly was that like. You know, I know, have friends who do it and they're like, well, I haven't had a drink in a few hours and oh, I've only had one drink or I haven't had a drink. The, the fact that like there's just such a close, you know, proximity of you might die and you might not. Mm, it's tight, just like, tight right walk almost. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And it just seems to me like, you know, why why would you risk it? Have you seen other incidents of people collapsing in clubs? Yeah, I've, I've kind of been, there's been a lot of clubs that I've been to where people have collapsed and then it's kind of like goes around what happened they were on G or whatever um, but to be completely honest there's been quite a few times where I've been around it when my own friends have been or a circle of friends um, have been taken out and I've just left because I have really bad memories and I, I, I feel really uncomfortable um, around it I had you know one friend who very close friend of mine who took it once and she didn't you know I think it was kind of a normal thing for you to go under, where you just kind of go unconscious, but that's actually, you know, some people are trying to get to do that, you know? I guess like similar to when people want to get themselves in, in a K-hole or whatever. That for me was another really difficult time because I witnessed that, this was a very close friend of mine. And I was like, I can't be around this drug anymore because I, what I've seen, and now my friends are doing it, and like, I just need to get away from it because it's just absolutely freaking me out because I'm sitting there on edge waiting for someone to maybe die it's like not the kind of thing you want to be yeah, of course of course I mean um, presumably you talk to them about the appeal of it or they'd kind of explain to you why they prefer it as a drug yeah and like I really don't want to be here to be like trying to judge because you know um, I use recreational drugs and um, I, I'm, I'm not someone to you know say oh that's okay but this isn't you know and I totally appreciate that, you know, everyone has their own kind of escapism or whatever. But um, there's just so much risk involved. And I guess it's like with anything, you're always maybe chasing that bigger high, you know. It's the same with alcohol. You kind of continue and you go until you kind of test yourself a little bit. But why do they say that they prefer it? Um, I think it's just another new high. I think a lot of people that do G as well have been taking other drugs for many, many years and it's just like something else, you know. Some people get a crazy kind of um, happiness from it. Others, you know, they get really horny from it. Like other people just, I guess, are trying to escape, like trying to get, you know, higher and higher. But um, mm. Have you done it yourself? I haven't, no. And I, I think I probably would have if I hadn't witnessed those things because... I've been around it, you know. I think that nearly every single person that you'll speak to who has a friend or has experience with G will have a story like that. Now, tell me how many friends you have that have a story like that about, you know, other drugs. Yeah, it's, sure. It, you know, it's, it's, dif it's different.
For a number of reasons, accurate statistics on the number of GHB-related deaths are hard to come by. In a report that was published around the beginning of 2017, toxicologists at Imperial College London found that GHB-related deaths rose by 119% in London between 2014 and 2015. Joanna Hockenhull, who was behind the study, told BuzzFeed News that this figure represented only a fraction of the UK figure because GHB isn't included in the general toxicology screening and is therefore often not picked up. Toxicologists would need information about the deceased and would need to be looking specifically for GHB. And even then, there are challenges. The test requires a urine sample, which isn't always available. There is debate among toxicologists about what levels prove a fatal ingestion. And GHB also has a short half-life, meaning it doesn't stay in the body for a long time. One of the major themes that has emerged among the people we've spoken with is the highly volatile and variable nature of dosing GHB. Back in the lab, Guy Jones expands on this. With GHB, it's really what is a normal amount to take and what would be an overdose is dependent on two things and it's very strongly dependent on them. So the first is the concentration of the solution. If there is water that has been added above what is necessary to get it to dissolve, then that is going to reduce the strength. And so yes, if somebody gets a later batch that's much stronger, that's going to catch them off guard. The other thing is somebody's body mass. So if they are a much bigger person and they have a lot of body fat, the G will tend to dissolve slightly into the body fat and they will need a slightly higher dose. So it's really almost impossible to say what is a normal dose for one specific person versus what is a dangerous dose because you simply don't know. As with many drugs and particularly black market drugs, the key thing is to start low with a small amount and increase your dose slowly to see how your body is responding so you don't overshoot the mark. The other thing with G when considering how much is a normal dose is that many people don't dose it accurately. So measuring by pouring into a bottle cap, a bottle cap could be anything from 1.5 up to about five milliliters. Well, that's a huge range of doses. And if you only know what your dose is in bottle caps, then you don't actually know how much you're taking. So if somebody else offers you from a different size bottle cap and somebody says, oh yeah, I normally have two bottle caps and it turns out to be twice the size of normal, well, that's a double dose and that will very quickly put you on your backside and having a little nap on the dance floor or wherever you happen to be. If you take it an unknown amount, that's dangerous enough. But if you've also already had two beers, you get kind of a one plus one equals three effect. Both drugs are targeting the same point in the brain, but ever so slightly different parts of that point. And so they have a really magnifying effect. And whereas normally one mil might be a pleasant amount for somebody, when they've had a couple of beers, that might be enough to send them to sleep. And with alcohol, there's a much greater chance that the body's breathing rate slows down. And so the brain becomes deprived of oxygen and that can cause actually really serious harm and even death. With GHB, I think people are rightly or wrongly feel that they can identify it better without needing to use a testing service. It does have a fairly distinctive kind of solventy smell and with GHB there's a kind of salty taste. The problem with GHB is that 
that salty taste is present at potentially wide range of strengths. So you could have a solution that has the maximum concentration or you could have a solution that's half as strong. And if somebody's used to getting the stuff that's half as strong and they then get sold a full strength GHB or even stronger GBL, then they may well find that they G out, that they pass out on the dance floor or anywhere else that's inappropriate. And that can range from being embarrassing to potentially deadly if they uh, perhaps choke on their vomit. With GHB, GBL, what we didn't realise was that it was a dependence-forming drug. Here's Monty Moncrief from London Friend. People were using it over the course of a weekend and then taking slightly more of it um, when they were finished to help them sleep. Um, it, you know, they would pass out from a slightly larger dose than the euphoric dose. And then the next morning they would be feeling a little bit edgy because they'd be starting to feel the, the, the beginnings of a come down and actually starting to feel the beginnings of withdrawal from the drug physical withdrawal. So they'd take a little bit more but not a euphoric dose just to take the edge off. And we found that people's weekends were kind of meeting in the middle. So people were coming in and they were using the drug every couple of hours. You know, they were setting their, the alarms on their phones to wake up through the night to take a dose just to prevent them going into withdrawal. And the withdrawal from GHB, GBL is particularly complicated medically. Um, if somebody's using at that level, it's really important that they seek medical supervision before stopping because it can be quite dangerous just to stop uh, without any support. It's a similar come down to, if, um, or similar withdrawal to people who've been using heroin or who've been using alcohol at a dependent level. So there's the risk of uh, your body going into fits and convulsions. Um, there's sort of you know delusional states, um, and people just feeling really irritable and really sick and nauseous. Um, in the early days of dealing with this, we we didn't really know what was going on. We had no there was no medical evidence to to back up the dependence issues. It was just what we were observing. But we were talking to people who were providing inpatient detoxes for um, clients using G at the time. And then we partnered with a, a new service called the Club Drug Clinic in London, which had been set up to work specifically with users of club drugs. They were starting to do outpatient detoxes. But in the early days, a couple of patients ended up in intensive care because the withdrawal is so intense. So it's really important that people are um, medically supervised. Well, I kind of kicked the habit by other habits. So I kicked it finally by starting a, like a very heavy opiate habit. <laughs> so I was able to move away from it just by trading one to the other. And then I stayed heavily addicted to opiates for a good seven years, six years before I finally stopped that. And I think that was enough time to then be able to quit both things and then go a different route of recovery like you know really focusing on exercise and nutrition and i was much older and so i actually didn't just stop right away it was actually a cycle of doing a lot of other things before i finally got to that point so it was just you know finally getting to that to that low point where you're like i have to you know either change or or it's not going to work out so i just was trading one for another until i finally got healthy <laughs> so having had a little bit of distance from the whole thing how do you reflect on an experience like that well you know what's funny is everyone always asks me that like you know because they're uh, the stories i can go on for days of what you know happened and what things and there were positive and negatives to it the whole time uh and then having such a you know like having it change my life 
to this degree, you would think that I would have a negative feeling about it. But all these years later, I still have a good place in my heart for it because I think it helped me break out of my shell. And I did a lot of things I would have never done in my life uh, without it. So selfishly, I say that I'm glad I'm, I'm I don't regret anything that had happened, actually. And how are you doing these days? Great now. Since 2007, I haven't touched any, you know, hard drugs like that or any type of anything else. I don't drink or do anything, really. I just work out and I'm doing I'm doing really well, actually. So it's been seven years now, I th- or since 2007. You know, it took a good, it was a good five years of my life of reconstructing. I was a completely different person. I, I It's hard to believe I did all that in the same lifetime as what I'm doing now. Putting together this show, a couple of my female friends mentioned that they suspected that GHB had once been slipped into their drink and they'd been sexually assaulted. But they had no way of telling. They woke up the next day with only vague recollections of the night before. When you combine these sorts of stories with everything we've just heard, it feels difficult to understand how a drug like GHB is still popular. But, of course, while it's still cheap and available, there will be people out there who want to take it. There are no easy answers in this ongoing issue, but to finish, a few of our contributors offer their thoughts on what we can do as a community. We've had a a long history of harm reduction messages um, for the community, and we know that things that stigmatise drug users are ineffective. We know that campaigns that are based on the principles of just say no are ineffective. So people want to have accurate information about what the drug may do. Uh, They want accurate information about the the harms, and they want to then weigh that up for themselves. You can't fight a war on drugs. It's just not possible. Firstly, is why I've, I'm doing this interview is just because you need to make people aware of the dangers, especially new people who haven't tried it and maybe are going to. Um, I think secondly, I mean, I really noticed in Berlin, there's a real kind of subtle message going on where you go to a club and there is a big sign that says G is not tolerated in this club. Now, basically, what that is saying is it's kind of shaming people a little bit because what they're saying is we know you're doing every other drug here. That drug is not allowed. For anybody who is planning on taking GHB, my advice is to realize this is not a drug that you should take to get fucked up on because all it's going to do is fuck you up. Less is more. And don't take it at clubs because you'll just be one of those casualties at the club who doesn't know how to measure it right because you can't see what you're doing. Don't drink too much because it will ruin you in a very short amount of time. It's the kind of drug if you want to try it out, you should do it somewhere very safe with some people that keep it on you. Or yes, again, you drugs, really. If you're worried about your use becoming problematic, we would urge people to seek some support as soon as possible. For some people, they're scared that addressing a drug problem means that they're going to have to give up. And for some people, that is the goal that they take. 
But we're working with people as well who decide that what they would prefer is more control over when they use. So how much of a drug they use, what drugs they use, um, you know, if they're going to do this for one night of a weekend or if it's going to be for all weekend, or if they're going to use maybe once a month instead of every weekend or once a quarter instead of every month. Uh, there are lots of changes that people can make. Um, it doesn't have to mean um, giving up entirely, but obviously we support people if that's the, uh, the goal that they've identified as well. Personally, I just feel that like it's really important that people know the dangers of it, especially if they're going to drink alcohol and 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 take other drugs alongside with it. You know, it's and I don't think it's a drug to be doing in a nightclub just because in the club full stop. Yeah, yeah, because it's you know you have to be very careful the amount that you take. You know, it's it's very easy to to take too much, and also you know when you're taking that a drug that has such high risks in a club. You're putting other people's livelihoods at risk as well. You know, it's like all it would take for another death in fabric or something like that. And, you know, that would be 300 people without jobs. Um, if you're going to take a drug that has such high risks, you should do it, I think, in a space that, um, you know, isn't going to affect other people's lives as well. I have friends that do it and I don't judge them for it, but I worry about them a lot. And I really hope that, you know, people understand more that there is a lot more risk involved than, than you know, taking a ping or whatever. It's very difficult for other people who are supporting friends or family members or partners, because it's very frustrating if a, a friend is engaging in behavior that you're worried about that might be harmful to their health. Um, we would say really let the friend know that you're concerned, let them know that, that you're there for them and be patient. Sometimes it does unfortunately take something to happen which kind of triggers a rock bottom for somebody before they realize that that's the, the, the change they want to make. But if you're talking about how concerned you are and what you've observed in their behavior, um, that's a helpful way in just letting the person know that you're there for them. Thank you to all of our contributors to this month's show and thank you for listening. Please feel free to share your thoughts and stories in the comments section. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this programme, we've provided some links to support sites in the episode description.